Korean War began June the 25th, 1950. And the U.S. and North Korea have been at odds ever since then in a non-declared war that uh, has not ceased to be declared the end of yet. And as we know, there have been high-level meetings between the leader of North Korea and the United States uh, recently here, this last week as a matter of fact. And I couldn't help but to think how wonderful it would be if our two nations could reconcile and solve the differences that we do have. What a wonderful thing it would really be for the North Koreans, where sanctions be lifted, but also where that leader, who might might turn out to be different from his father and his grandfather, could bring peace to that country, open up trade where they could prosper as they prosper in South Korea, and the opportunity for the gospel to reach into that nation, because right now it's pretty well closed for the gospel reaching to that nation. I don't know about you, but I certainly was praying that something good will come from these meetings. It will probably take a few years uh, if it can be done. And nothing is as simple as it appears on the surface. I know that some might think, well, we shouldn't pray for something like that. But why wouldn't we want to pray for peace and the opportunity of preaching the gospel to that nation? South Koreans are quite religious. There are Korean, what, Methodist, Presbyterian, I don't know, some sort of churches uh, quite large in some particular cases. I remember up in Toronto, we used to meet there for a uh, charity and law seminar put on by one of the attorney groups there in, in uh, Toronto, and there'd be a thousand people or there, about 600 to a thousand, I'm not sure the exact number, but they had to find an auditorium that was large enough, and uh, they would open up for us and be able to meet there. So there were a lot of members there of that Protestant de- denomination that was primarily Korean. And it would be wonderful if that would open up. But that's not the only breach between peoples on the face of the earth, and we know that there's not going to be peace until Christ returns. But look at the divides that we have within nations, ethnic, political, economic, and cultural divides that exist. And not just simple divides, but animosity between various groups. What about the breaches in families, parents, and children who won't speak to one another? We sometimes see husbands and wives that won't speak to each other, and sometimes divorces as a result. We have members who are sometimes at odds with one another and will not speak to one another. I've actually heard people say, well, I, I, I don't hate that person, I just don't like him. Or uh, I don't dislike that person, but I just have to stay away. So whenever they see that person coming, they go on the other side of the hall. Sometimes there are divides that are pretty serious. Occasionally... As I've learned over the years, even a few ministers, it's the rare case, but even there, there are ministers who don't get along with one another, even when they need to work together, their neighbors and that sort of thing. But sometimes that's the case. In the ministry, we are human, we're not perfect, 
And it is sad, though, when that is the case. All of these divides that we see are the result of a greater breach, and that breach is between mankind and God. Because none of these breaches are going to be solved or settled until we learn to be at peace with God, until there is a reconciliation between man and God. And so in today's sermon, I'm going to talk about reconciliation between human beings, one with another, and between human beings and our Creator. I normally don't give titles, that's my specific purpose statement there that I just gave, but I'll give it to you for those who need titles, our need for reconciliation. Let's look, first of all, at our breach with God and need for reconciliation with our Creator. We know that in Genesis, the third chapter, that there was a problem. I'm not going to turn there. I've turned there recently in sermons, but we are very familiar with that passage where Adam and Eve chose the wrong direction. Adam was responsible. Eve was the one that the serpent went to. He knew that he could get through to her a little bit easier and that she would have a powerful influence upon her husband. And as a result, they were booted out of the garden and there was a breach between God and man. Over in Isaiah 59, we read, of what the cause of the problem is, which really uh, goes back there to the Garden of Eden. It was disobedience. It was a violation of what God had told them to do. They stole something. They took something that didn't belong to them. They dishonored their father, their heavenly father in this case. They coveted, they lusted after something. And they brought about, introduced in one sense, murder. Uh, not only of themselves, but their offspring as well. In Isaiah 59, verse 1, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. That's what has brought about the breach is our iniquities, our sins, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. And he says, goes on, says, no one calls for justice nor any pleas for truth. And it goes on from there. But this is the cause of the breach that has taken place between God and man. God, who is our creator, our heavenly father, has told us certain things that we ought to do. And we say, we know better. We know better, and we'd like to decide for ourselves. Even when God reaches out to man, even after the garden, it seems that we never listen. We can go back to Exodus, the 32nd chapter. And Moses had been up on the mountain. We're familiar with this. There's nothing here that you're not familiar with. But in uh, Exodus 32... we find that the people built or constructed a golden calf. And so here in verse 9, it says, And the Eternal said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people. It's interesting when you think about it. How stiff is your neck? 
I have to ask myself the same question. Are we stiff-necked? Those of us who are Israelites and those who are not Israelites, are we stiff-necked? But nevertheless, as it says here, this is a stiff-necked people. We often think that we're different from those people back then. When I first came into the church, I couldn't understand how they could see all of the miracles they did, that they saw, including the opening up of the Red Sea, pretty spectacular, with all those other miracles and then the manna that was coming down, that was feeding them six days a week, but not on the seventh. It was saved over from the day before when any other day they couldn't save it over. They saw all those miracles, and yet they murmured, and they grumbled, and they complained against Moses, and in reality they complained and grumbled against God. And how they all fell away, that was so hard to understand when I first came into the church. And then we had the death of Mr. Armstrong, and we saw what happened. We saw how quickly people turned back to sin how quickly they made, as it were, a golden calf, how they descended into idolatry. Now, we're here, not there, but nevertheless, even amongst ourselves, sometimes we're stiff-necked, aren't we, if we're truly honest with ourselves. He says, now, therefore, let me alone. God was so fed up with them at this point that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them, and I will make of you, make of you, Moses, a great nation. But Moses pleaded with the Eternal, his God, and said, Eternal, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? It's interesting here that nobody wanted to claim them. If you go back to verse 7, the Eternal said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So God was saying, Moses, these are your people. And Moses saying, no, they're not. They're your people, God. It's just an interesting little detail there. I think everybody was fed up with, well, everybody, God and Moses, both. But he says, your wrath is burning hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. We're told over in the 106th Psalm, Psalm 106, that this was a a very serious situation that they were in because God could have destroyed them. He had every right to do so. God could destroy all of mankind. He could, this earth could uh, explode and, and uh, or a, a giant uh, asteroid could hit it. Any number of things could happen to destroy all life off the face of this earth. God did destroy the earth once with a flood, not just rain coming down from above, but the the depths of the earth breaking up, the fountains of the deep breaking up, it was coming from above and from below. And here we see in Psalm 106, verse 23, uh, let me go back to verse 19. It says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molded image. 
Thus they challenge or change their glory into the image. Thus they change their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach. Moses stood in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Now, maybe this was a test of Moses to see whether Moses would bite and say, yes, go ahead, God, destroy them and make a great nation out of me. But Moses didn't do that. There's a lot that we don't understand about this situation, but what we do know, it was a very serious situation that God could have destroyed them. But it says here that Moses stood in the breach. So one individual stood up against the crowd, against human nature, to do what is right. But even when God gave mankind an opportunity even after the Garden of Eden, even after that basic breach at the beginning, every time God dealt with man, it seemed like there was another breach. Let's notice over in Numbers, the 14th chapter. Numbers 14, all that God had done for Israel. This is after the golden calf. In Numbers 14, We find that the spies had gone out. Actually, that's in the 13th chapter. And the spies had gone out. And the people refused to enter into the promised land. They did not have faith that God could protect them and save them. Ten of the spies gave a bad report of the land. They said, well, it's a great land, except that there are these giants, and we're just like grasshoppers in their eyes. We're so small, and they can just step on us and... We'd be nothing. But then down in verse 33, let's read there. It says, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness. Uh, And he said, for 40 years. So God was going to place on them 40 years of punishment. And they'll bear the brunt uh, of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. Verse 34, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, Forty days for each day you shall bear your iniquity one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection, his rejection of them. So here God was working with the people. We know that he had cut mankind off in general, but he chose the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he chose them for a special purpose. And even then, when he chose those people, they rejected him, and he rejected them. We know that ultimately the agreement, the covenant, a marriage covenant that God made with Israel brought about a divorce because the people refused to obey God. Sometimes those things happen even in this physical life, sadly, but it's because of sin. It's always because of sin. Reconciliation between God and man can take place. This breach that has taken place can be healed. We have a booklet on the holy days. 
that describe God's plan for mankind, how God is healing the breach, how he is reconciling man to himself. And he has a time schedule, as we're all familiar with. He's calling a few today, but he's going to work with all of mankind later. And we know that he will heal that breach eventually. Each year we observe the Passover, and that's the beginning of God's plan to reconcile man to himself. That's the beginning. In John, the first chapter, in verse 29, we read how John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, referred to him in a very special way. In John 1, verse 29, says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was a reference back to the Passover, and we'll be talking about that in the weeks to come. And during the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, we'll be talking about that more. But here, John recognized that Jesus was the Lamb of God, that He was the true Passover Lamb that would take away the sins of the world. That was a in, in a sense, a revolutionary idea. I wonder how many of the Jews comprehended that there had to be a human sacrifice, but more than a human sacrifice. There had to be one whose life was more, worth more than all human beings put together to take away the sins of the world, that the very God of the Old Testament had to die on their behalf, on our behalf. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is where it all begins. This is where reconciliation does begin. We know over in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, in verse 7, that it says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And the original word there is, sacrifice is a, a correct word, but it really means slaughtered, slaughtering of a lamb, of an animal. We hear about the slaughterhouse, where they slaughter lambs. We don't normally think of them as sacrificing them. There's a little difference in terms of what it means, sacrificing for something else, but it's a slaughter. It's a brutal death. It can be quick. In slaughterhouses, they try to make it painless and quick. They don't try to torture an animal. But Christ was tortured. He was beaten. By his stripes we are healed. And it wasn't just uh, the stripes that he received in that cat and nine tails beating, as it were. But it was the pummeling, the fist, the palms of their hands that were striking him. The, you know, the whole great picture. Now, when we have Passover, in the Old Testament Passover, they cut the throat of a lamb. They took some of the blood, they painted over the, uh, the house, the door of the house, and on the two side posts. But we call it the Passover day or the day of Passover. And Christ's agony was all during that day in one sense. He was in agony in the garden the night before. He knew that that was his last meal as a physical human being with his disciples. He came together. That must have been a very emotional time for him, knowing what was coming. And so when he did go out in the garden that evening, 
He cried out to God, if there's any other way, nevertheless not my will but yours be done. He was taken into custody. He was spit upon. He was beaten. He received the, the, the lashing or the whipping, the stripes. It was a brutal beating. And then hung up on a stake with his hands and his feet with nails. It was a brutal thing all day long till about three in the afternoon when he died. But he wasn't put in the grave until the end of the day, right around sunset. The whole day was the Passover. We don't do that with the lamb, the physical lamb. God is not a God of cruelty, but because of our sins, God wants us to understand the cost of our sins. And the sermonette pointing out that we should be very thankful for God's forgiveness of our sins. In John 3.16, it's a verse that the world quotes a lot, but really does not understand. They understand a little bit of it. But in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. People look at the sacrifice of Christ and they look what he went through. But notice that it says God, for God, that he gave his only begotten son. This was God the Father giving us this sacrifice, as it were. And so while we focus, and rightfully so, on the sacrifice of Jesus the Christ, we must never forget that it was the Father who offered him up. And every parent here knows that if you had to watch your son or your daughter go through what Christ went through, what an agonizing, painful experience that would be. And how God avoided the temptation of just wiping the whole thing out and no one except the angels, I guess, would ever know No man would ever know whatever happened. He could have simply destroyed the earth at that time, but he didn't. He refrained. And he went through the agony of watching his son being sacrificed. I hope if you've not done so, that you will read that booklet, not because I wrote it, but because there's so much in it. I never intended to write that booklet. I was going to write a simple article And as it turned out, it kind of grew into something a little bit more than that in the realization that almost every part of this verse, you can parse it and look at every part of it, and the world does not know who God is. They don't know what real love is. They don't understand that it was done for the whole world, that the sacrifice of Christ is not only for those individuals today who claim Christ as their Savior, but for all of mankind, for all of mankind to have a choice, to have a chance, and we can know that all men have not had a chance. All those people in other parts of the world, they had never even heard of Christ, and those who are so deceived because of false religion. His only begotten Son, even understanding what that means, whoever believes and what is belief you just take every part of this and they don't understand they don't even understand what perish means 
the contrast between that and everlasting life. There's so much in that booklet. I hope that you will take time to read it. Again, not because I wrote it, but because there's a lot in it that is not understood in general. In Colossians, the first chapter, Colossians 1, this breach between man and God is being healed, reconciled, not easily, not easily done. In Colossians 1, verse 19, I'll start actually in verse 18. It says, He is the head of the body, the church. Speaking of Christ, it says that He's one that created all things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. That's verse 16. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross or his stake. It pleased God the Father to make that reconciliation between man and himself. And it had to take place by the precious blood of our Creator. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled. God has reconciled us to Himself in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above all repro- above reproach in His sight. If indeed... Notice, if, all this is contingent upon that little word, if. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's notice over in Hebrews, the second chapter. Hebrews 2. Not only did Jesus give his life on our behalf, but he is now our high priest. He is interceding on our behalf with his Father. Notice Hebrews 2, verse 14. Inasmuch as the children have partaken... I'm sorry, I got the wrong chapter. Chapter... Yeah, that's right. Chapter 2. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus partook of flesh and blood. The Word, the spokesman, came down here, partook of this physical flesh. And through this sacrifice... He was able to destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, we might say that, well, we're not afraid of death. And in one sense, I think that's true. But 
It doesn't contradict the scripture when we say that because through fear of death, mostly what we fear is dying, the dying process, isn't it? I don't think any of us look forward to that. We all hope that we'll die in the middle of the night in our sleep and we'll never know it. We'll just suddenly, you know, go to bed one night and wake up in the resurrection. That happens occasionally. But usually for most of us, it's not quite that easy, is it? And I think that God allows, well, I know, He allows suffering so that we can learn from it. Even Jesus suffered certain things and learned from the things that He suffered. But here it speaks of fear of death. And we do. We want to live forever. I've always been intrigued by people who are older and they have been in decent health for a while and all of a sudden something happens and they realize the end is coming and they want to live. And you think, well, that person is 85. Isn't it time to give up? Well, the the closer you get to that age, the more you understand. You never get to the place where you want to give up unless you're in terrible pain or suffering. But as long as you have reasonable health, and sometimes when we say reasonable, that's relative. When you're 20 years of age, good health means one thing. When you're 70 years of age, good health means something entirely different. You've got a few aches and pains here and there a little arthritis, a little bit of other problems, but you think of, well, for the most part, I'm doing okay. So it's all a matter of relativity there. For indeed, he does not give aid to to angels, uh, verse 16, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation simply means to conciliate. Now, conciliate is is the same basic uh, foundational word as uh, reconcile. If you notice, just write it down there, console, conciliate is what. So when we reconciliate, we conciliate. Uh, It means to atone for sin, to be propitious, meaning merciful, or simply put, to make reconciliation for. So Jesus is making reconciliation between God and man. He is a faithful high priest pertaining to God to make propitiation or reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are also tempted. So when we look at reconciliation between God and man, there was a horrendous sacrifice that had to take place in order for that to happen. Let's go back to Romans, the sixth, fifth chapter, Romans 5. And we'll begin in verse 6, Romans 5, verse 6. It says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were, at one time, ungodly. And Christ died for us. We were without strength. We had no way of solving the problem of and by ourselves. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. So even there, there's an indication that, yes, in this life, physically speaking, some people are good men and some people are bad men uh, in that sense. Good, not in the sight of God, but in a physical sense as we view people. So a good man, someone would even dare die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, in other words, while we were still bad guys, we weren't the good guy. And that we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did that for us before we did anything ourselves. Much more than having now been justified, having our past sins forgiven by his blood. So important that we understand the subject of justification. If you want to understand the book of Romans, you have to understand the meaning of justification, which means our past sins have been forgiven. Uh, Another way to look at it, being in line with God. Being on the same page, being in line with God, we speak in terms of, of uh, word processing, of left justification, where the left margin is lined up, as opposed to just jagged, or right justification, where the end of it all lines up, except, you know, at the end of a paragraph or something, or end of a sentence. But then you have full justification, where it's lined up straight on both sides, which, if your Bible is like mine, it's lined up that way right now. But if you go back to the Psalms or other parts of Scripture, you find out that it's not necessarily justified, indicating that it is a poetic in nature. We are to be in line with God. In order to be lined up with God, in order to be justified, in other words, having our past sins that have separated us from God removed so that we can be in line with God once again, said he demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood. It is through his blood that we are reconciled to God. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Saved by his life, Jesus Christ must live his life in us. And we'll get to that very quickly here, but we have to have Christ living his life in us to be able to maintain that justification, as it were. Christ can forgive our sins, or God can forgive our sins, but we need the life of Christ in us to continue in the right direction. And, of course, we need Jesus Christ as our high priest, living high priest to make intercession for us as well. Now, we have a part in this reconciliation. It's not going to happen without some effort on our part. Notice over in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. This is a famous passage that people turn to often to show that there is nothing we have to do. It's all been done for us, and they miss the point. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. That's right, we are saved by God's grace. That forgiveness that that comes about is is by God's grace. It's not something we earn. Your sins yesterday are not forgiven by your keeping of the law perfectly from this day forward. That is grace, that is mercy. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, having faith in that sacrifice that brings about that reconciliation. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But notice verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Christ is doing something for us to produce people of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should walk in good works. We aren't just saved and then we just go about our lives doing anything. You know that. I don't have to tell you these things. You understand that. It's good to review it, though, from time to time. Notice over in Titus, you might hold your place here because because I'm coming back to Ephesians 2, but uh, let's notice over in the book of Titus, the second chapter, and we'll begin in verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Notice the grace of God, which we were just reading about there in Ephesians, the second chapter, that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. In other words, God's grace should teach us something, that we are to deny ungodly and worldly lusts, and that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed." Every lawless deed. That's what sin is about, lawlessness. And purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zealous to do the right thing. You know, it speaks here of lawless deeds. That's what we've been redeemed from. Redeem us from every lawless deed. If you do away with the law, you do away with sin. It's just impossible to have it because sin is a transgression of the law. And where there is no uh, law, there is no transgression, as the Apostle Paul says. Let's go back to Ephesians again, Ephesians 2 and verse 11. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, the Jews at least had the knowledge of the Old Testament and the oracles of God and everything, and there was a difference there between the Jews and the Gentiles in that sense. But, ultimately, God loves both, and he has a plan for all. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you, speaking of the Gentiles, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ's blood covers you just as much as it does anyone else. For he himself, verse 14, is our peace, 
who has made both one, both Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. In the temple there was a wall, a, a place of separation that the Jews could not, I'm sorry, that the Gentiles could not go beyond. And that's why, remember, when the Apostle Paul was accused of taking, was it Timothy or whoever it was, uh, into the temple, that area that was not for the Gentiles. And that's where they stirred up the, or Trophimus, maybe it was Trophimus, I think. Uh, at any rate, uh, he, he took someone, or the, he, he didn't actually take him, but they thought he had taken him because they had seen him with him the day before. And they accused him of going beyond this middle wall of separation. And so it's showing here that this separation between Jews and Gentiles, which was a construct of the Jews, there was nothing in the making of the uh, temple there that God had given them to draw up this wall. But nevertheless, it says here, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. These man-made rules and regulations that the Jews had built up over time, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So Christ, through his sacrifice, abolished in the flesh the enmity, the animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles through this, you know, destroying of the these human regulations, as it were, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the animosity, that was there. Now, that doesn't mean that Jews and Gentiles were perfect in that, but through Christ's sacrifice, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we can come to be one new man, as it says here, verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation the same foundation that we are all built upon of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So there is no difference in that context of Jew and Gentile through the sacrifice of Christ. That sacrifice was made for all men. And when Cornelius uh, had that vision, and then Peter, uh, Peter realized that there is no distinction there. That God has called both Jews and Gentiles. And that's why it's so important for us, even in our world today, to understand that God's people are everywhere in this world. In the Spanish language, uh, we, we have far more viewers of our, not only viewers, but uh, fans, what's the word, uh, not the word fan, but uh, uh, subscribers to our YouTube channel. I'm just noticing we have two telecasts that uh, Mr. Bias here has uh, lip-synced for that are over 1.38 million uh, views in the Spanish language. It's amazing. It far exceeds anything we're doing in the English language. 
And God has a purpose for all these people. You know, in one sense, we see the work expanding more in some of these other countries than we do here. It's kind of like God is saying, I'm getting tired of the Israelites. I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. Well, God is going to fill up that banquet, that wedding uh, feast that's coming. And if it takes going out in the highways and the byways, as he describes there, and the lame and the you know blind and so forth, that's, what, that's what's going to happen. But he's going to fill it up. It just seems that in our Israelite nations, we have come to the place where we are too good for God or we just don't need God. And we're rejecting God at every turn. The Tomorrow's World presentations are so interesting because the few that come, the few of all those that you invite, oftentimes they're very excited. They really enjoy what they hear. But then they're going to go right back to a religion of the golden calf. They're going to go right back to their idolatry, their pagan customs, and they may love what we do, but they're familiar with their friends and their family, and it just right over their head. They simply do not get it. Something is required of us. Reconciliation does not end with Passover. It requires unleavened bread. It requires repentance and baptism. And it requires something else, and that is it requires Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 2.20 we're all familiar with. Dr. Meredith quoted it so many times. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ must live his life in us. Now, why must Christ live his life in us? Well, let's notice over in Romans. Romans 8. And this is so important for us. This is, this is one, a concept that we, we can know academically, but we don't always apply it in a very personal way. In Romans 8, verse 28, it says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Notice, sometimes people just quote the first part of it. They say, well, we know all things work together for good. Well, that's not necessarily so. Because it follows for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Everything isn't good out there, but it works for good to those who love God. And what does the love of God entail? Well, we have to understand that term. Those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many brethren, but we are to be conformed to the image of his Son. And what does that mean? Well, notice over in the 12th chapter of Romans, Romans 12, verse 1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in the mercy by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, do we see ourselves as a sacrifice to God? Holy, 
acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is reasonable that God expects that we are a sacrifice or we sacrifice our lives. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I was thinking about this this morning, meditating on this a little bit, and sometimes thoughts come together in a a different sort of way, but uh, I I was thinking back on a conversation that several of us had this last week in a meeting, and we were discussing a particular problem, and we were going to draw up a, a series of guidelines. And, you know, it struck me that we can draw up every guideline that we want, and, and we, we get into terms. I even brought up the, the fact that when I was in high school, I was taking a course in law, uh, just a, a one-year or one-semester course. I don't remember how long it was, but it was, uh, it was no more than a year. And it was a very interesting course. And I remember that the instructor was reading some of the laws. Did you know that, for example, in California, you have a right that, as far as I know, you don't have any other any other state. I mean, it's in their constitution, the right to fish. I love that. I know Mr. Ellison would love that, and Jeffrey. The right to go fishing. But there was a particular law on stealing horses. This goes back quite a few decades, a century or more, when it was written. And every time it came to horse, then in parentheses it had mules, uh, you know, jackass, uh, whatever. It, it just started listing a whole long list of everything that, that could be construed as a horse. In fact, it might have even had camel in there because camels actually did live in California at one time. I don't remember if a camel was there. But it was quite interesting to see this long list of things. And unless they've overhauled that law or it ceases to be a law, which once the law is there, it's hard to get rid of them. Uh, but it always had to cover everything. Why? Because everybody's trying to find a loophole. And, and it just struck me in this conversation we had, you know, we can draw up, we can cover every eventuality, but people will find a way around it. That's why we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit, the intent of the law. That's what we are to live by. So let's apply that to modesty. We've struggled with this for decades in the church. Uh, skirt lengths, for example. There was a time when, uh, you know, apparently I was not there. I only heard about it that at the imperial schools that some of the girls had to get down their knees and make sure their skirt touched the floor. And the, the sad thing about that is that we, we get to the place where we say, well, whatever we don't want, we don't want yardstick religion. So we, we never have any kind of uh, an example of something. And, and you need some examples, and the Scripture is very clear about that. When you look at, as an example, the Ten Commandments, then follow you have these judgments to help us to understand as examples. But they're not intended to cover every last eventuality. Why? Because that's why we have so many laws in human law. When you're only looking at the letter of the law, you will never get to the end of writing laws. Someone will always find a way around it. Now, what we need to understand is the intent and the purpose of of a particular regulation or whatever. When it comes to modesty, we always struggle with that. Sometimes it's it's always with ladies. I'm sorry. It's it's one-sided. 
it, it just it just happens to be that way. I, so I shouldn't apologize. It's just the way it is. It's the truth. But it's always too low on the top and too high on the bottom. That's usually what we have. And, you know, if, if people understood what modesty is and what the purpose of it is, we wouldn't have to have all this regulation of trying to figure out what they can wear and what they can't wear. Amazing, in our summer camps, we, we have people that complain. They, they see pictures and say, well, hey, those kids don't look very modest to me. Well, when somebody's wearing short shorts, really short shorts, that's not modest. But we don't want to get the yardstick out, do we? But sometimes you have to give examples of this is modest and this is not. And, and to get the idea, because truthfully, you, you, you have to have some, some standard, some, some sort of a, an idea of what we're talking about with modesty. But why do we fight this issue all the time? It's not because we haven't explained it. It's because some people are more conformed to this world than they are conformed to the mind of Christ. As it says there, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The parable of the lost son, I'd like to call it that, the parable of the prodigal son. The lost son is what it says there. What we ought to say is it's the parable of the son who returned. Or the parable of the, uh, the son who came to himself. In many respects, that parable really explains what reconciliation is all about. You can read it there in the 15th chapter of Luke. I won't take the time for it because I'm running out of time. But you can read it there in Luke, the 15th chapter. And we have this young man who says, I, I, I'd like my inheritance now. God the Father, because the whole parable is about God the Father and our relationship with him and the reconciliation that takes place, he allows him to make the mistake of going out there and spending everything, wasting everything. But when he comes to himself, he's willing to admit that he has sinned against God and against his Father. He has sinned against his his heavenly father, and he's disrespected his human father. And he humbles himself, and he comes back, and the father immediately accepts him. Now, there's much to that parable. There's much more that we could cover. But I'll allow someone else the time to do that. The point is that we must be reconciled, and we must not only be reconciled to God, as the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son does picture there, how we must come back, be reconciled, and how quickly God is to forgive upon true repentance. But we must also be reconciled person to person. There are examples here in Scripture showing that we... Uh, must reconcile person to person. 
even in the prodigal son, you have the older brother and the son who have a little bit of a problem there. And the father has to intervene to try to bring about reconciliation between those two. And 1 John 4, verses 19 to 21, it talks about how we loved or we love him because he first loved us. God the Father loved us first of all. Jesus Christ first of all loved us. And so therefore, uh, we've come to love him when we understand what he's done for us. But let's turn over to 1 John 4. It says, verse 19, we love him because he loved us, first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, if he does not love his brother whom he's seen. Uh, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. God wants us to be reconciled one to another. Let's notice over in Matthew 5, just two scriptures here, and then we'll go to a, a final series. But uh, Matthew 5 and verse 26. It says here, five twenty-one, Matthew five twenty-one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, "You shall not murder," and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to him, his brother Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, "You fool." You empty head, whatever, uh, shall be in danger of hellfire. In other words, where you write the person off, the other individual off, is a human being. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, verse 23, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, we're all very familiar with that. We've read it how many times? But do we understand the importance that God places on reconciling differences, solving the breaches that take place? These things happen in our lives. We are offended from time to time. We are disappointed in a friend from time to time. We disagree with a friend from time to time. And sometimes that friend is very, very close to us. Notice over in 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. This is talking about where two people are in the church, where two people are truly believers. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, I understand there are a lot of things that happen behind closed doors, and I think that those of us who are not in that situation where there's a divorce situation, we just need to leave things with God, uh, leave sometimes ministries involved in some of these things. But there are a lot of things about life that we don't understand, and sometimes members get involved where they ought not be involved. They 
are concerned, they see a situation and they make judgments that, that they're not really called upon to make. But nevertheless, the idea is that Paul says, look, don't separate, don't depart from your husband or your wife. But he also recognizes that it, with human nature and that with certain problems that could come up that are not necessarily uh, serious enough that a divorce is there, but at the same time somebody can't live with somebody for, for some reason, uh, maybe because of the background somebody has, they just the temperament, uh, they're unstable or any number of things. But Paul allows for the fact that one could depart. But he says, if you do, don't do it, but if you do, then remain unmarried or be reconciled. That's the ideal. That's the ideal. But neither Paul nor the church requires the two be, people be reconciled. On the other hand, if they're not reconciled and they're truly bound, then they can't just go off and marry somebody else and wreck somebody else's life. Or maybe they won't wreck it, but there is there's, there are standards that are there. So he says, don't do it, but if you do, remain unmarried or be reconciled. I think we all know that if reconciliation is possible, how wonderful that would be. In so many cases, reconciliation is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And yet Paul told the Romans, I think it was in Romans, the book of Romans, that if, if possible, be at peace with all men if it's, if it's possible. There are situations where it's just not possible. You can do everything you can do, but the other person may not make it possible. But with everything that's in you, try to reconcile. Whether it be between family members, whether it be in a marriage, whether it be with neighbors, you can try to reconcile with your neighbor, but you know that some neighbors in this world just aren't going to allow you to have peace with them. There are some people who just don't like you. I remember Bill uh, when I was growing up. For some reason, Bill just didn't like me. And, and every chance he got, he would come after me. And uh, it, was, it was kind of funny when I think back on it. I don't know what I ever did to him, but he just didn't like me. Now, I don't think that I could have ever reconciled with Bill at that time, although probably if I ran into him today, we could be, you know, we could sit down and have a drink together and, and we'd be fine. Because kids have, you know, they're different from adults. But there are adults that you just can't be friends with, no matter how much you try. But as much as is within you, try to be at ease. You know, there, there's a passage that is the greatest reconciliation that I can think of it goes back in the book of Genesis, and I want to take a little bit of time here, not too much time. I'm running out of time. <clears throat> Got about five minutes, I think. But it starts in Genesis, the 37th chapter, and we're all familiar with this, this story. But I don't know about you, but this has to be one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Here is Joseph, and he's a bit of a brat of a kid. He's, uh, he's a little bit arrogant. Uh, he's perhaps a bit spoiled because he was his father's favorite. And God was working with him, and, and he had these dreams that uh, his, his brothers and his mother and father were going to bow down to him. And that didn't really set very well with his older brothers. 
And so they're off taking care of the sheep, and he's sent on a mission to go and, and uh, see how they're doing, and he comes up to them in verse 18 of chapter 37. When they saw him afar off, even before he came near to them, they conspired against him, notice, to kill him. This would indicate that there was a bit of a problem in this family, that all the brothers wanted to kill one of them. They were serious about it. They wanted to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, Well, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. So we'll, we'll lie to our father and just say a wild beast got him. But Reuben, one of the things that's interesting about this whole passage is the nature of the of the families that came. Reuben, the firstborn. Reuben had his problems, but Reuben would stand up at certain times. And even, I think it was Margaret Thatcher told Reagan that the French will grumble and complain and drag their feet, but when the chips are down, they'll be with you. Something to that effect. You know, Reuben's been a a good friend of the United States when you look back. But sometimes, you know, we can knock heads, can't we? But in the end, here's Reuben standing tall. And he's saying, well, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into the pit. But his idea was, we don't want to shed his blood. We'll let him just die there. But, but Reuben's intent was to come back and save him. In the meantime, I don't know where Reuben went, but Reuben wandered off a little bit, perhaps taking care of the sheep, being responsible in that way. And he came back, and his brothers had sold Joseph to a bunch of people that were going down to Egypt, a traveling caravan. And so we know how Joseph got down to Egypt and what happened with him down there and how uh, it seemed like every time he'd get up and somebody would knock him down again. God had a, a purpose in mind for him. He was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. And he didn't come out of slavery until he was 30. That's when he was uh, sent up to, to Pharaoh. So he spent 13 years of his life, almost not quite half of it, but a lot of it, uh, where God was blessing him, but at the same time he was teaching him lessons of humility that he needed to know. Now, when we get down to verse chapter 41, verses 13 and 14, he goes before Pharaoh. Notice he shaved before he came to Pharaoh. Sometimes people get funny ideas about how we should never shave. Well, here's someone that God clearly blessed in every way, and he shaved before he went before Pharaoh. And then we find that the brothers of, of Joseph come down into Egypt, and they're going to... Uh, spare, uh, or they're going to buy grain. Let's notice chapter 42, verse 35. It happened as they emptied their sacks. They've already gotten this grain. They come back. They have emptied their sacks. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of Joseph. Well, this this gets down to where... uh, Simeon is, is eventually held... And captive, and Joseph says, 
I want to see my younger, well, he doesn't say my younger brother, but he wanted to see Benjamin, their youngest brother. And he held Simeon, well, he held all of them in, in prison for three days, perhaps teach him a little bit of a lesson, what it's like to be in prison, an Egyptian prison at that. And uh, in the end, he, uh, he kept one of them. I, I have to believe that Simeon was the ringleader in all this, and that's why he was chosen. Simeon is known for a bit of cruelty, and that's why the Simeonites were going to be scattered among the tribes. And anyway, uh, he, uh, he keeps him there. And then it, it turns out that uh, they bring, they, they don't have any choice. They have to bring uh, Benjamin back, otherwise Simeon's not going to be set free. And, of course, the worry that, that uh, Jacob goes through in this just must be absolutely uh, horrendous. But uh, in chapter 43, verse 2, we find here that Judah says, no, we can go back down. We can take Benjamin with us. He says, the man solemnly warned us, verse 3, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But he's not going to give us food without our brother going. And Israel, or Jacob, says, why did you tell him about him? And, well, he asked about all these details, we very specifically about things. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me. So Judah takes responsibility. He says, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Well, that sure harkens back to what happened when Christ was crucified. We'll take the blame forever. But notice that Judah is the one, and Judah was who Christ came from, and he was the one that was willing to put his life on the line for all of us. For if we'd not lingered, we'd already have food. In chapter 43, we see that uh, money is put in Benjamin's sack. He is then taken back. And Judah stands up for him once again. Verse 14 uh, says, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 44, verse 14. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I could uh, practice a divination? Well, not that he did, but... He's using this, obviously, he was not a diviner. But Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? And then Judah pleads for Benjamin to be set free and that he'll take his place as Christ took our place. We should have more time for it, but let's go to chapter 45. Then Joseph could not constrain himself before, uh, before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. They must have, it seems that he's right there before his brothers, weeping. 
and they must wonder what is going on here. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? Can you imagine that moment? Now they were terrified at that. They knew what they did to Joseph. And Joseph said to his brothers, verse 4, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not, therefore, be grieved or angry for yourselves or with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you, before you to preserve life. In other words, he saw the big picture. He had every reason to be bitter and angry. But he was willing to forgive his brothers. Now, whoever you might be mad at right now, has that person threatened to kill you? Has that person sold you into slavery? You have to think about that. Who is it that we cannot forgive? There's a reason why this is in the scriptures. God wants reconciliation. And what a beautiful thing it is. What an incredible story that is. Our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 20. And you know, consider the beauty of reconciliation. What if Korea and the U.S. could solve their problems? What if the Arabs and Israelis? What if husbands and wives, parents and children, and the list is endless, could all be reconciled, all the hurts, all the pains? The day is going to come when the breaches are healed. Isaiah 19, the latter part of it, talks about the time when Assyria and Egypt and Israel will have that breach healed. Those that are in the millennium are going to be called the preparers of the breach. God has called us to the ministry of reconciliation. And that ministry begins with you and with me that we will reconcile our differences. And what a better time to do that than right now before the Passover. 